The information and opinions presented in this Arc Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the Arc Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Well, welcome back. And I'm back, back from my European vacation. And Jackie, I love going to Europe dominantly for the art and the architecture and of course the history that's associated with the art and the architecture and, and every time I stand in front of some of these historic buildings whether there are things like the the Roman Pantheon or whether it's cathedrals and things I'm just amazed and staggered by the ability to build these grand structures with materials when they didn't even have modern cranes and things it's just quite staggering and then of course the materials themselves are really quite amazing you know take concrete for example which was i think it dates back to the fourth century bc but was refined and in italy where i was i spent a couple weeks you know they figured out how to mix the concrete mix with volcanic ash and uh, strengthen it and so on and it's just really quite amazing but you know as we fast forward to today and the subject of today which we are going to talk about concrete is of course that the mixing of concrete and the processes does liberate a lot of carbon dioxide greenhouse gases and so the mix has to be changed yet again and that's what we want to talk about isn't it yeah i mean concrete is responsible for about eight percent of global carbon emissions more than double those from flying you may be surprised to know and you think flying Mm. in airplanes is where we're getting all our emissions from but but concrete's fairly significant. And, and as you say, we, we build these buildings and they last for many years, but every year we build quite a few more buildings. And Canada, it's a little bit less. According to the government of Canada's website, 1.5% of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions were from concrete. That's probably because we have a lot of other industrial output compared to a lot of other countries that makes that percentage smaller. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested today to learn a bit more about how the emissions from concrete can change and and what the constraints and barriers are to doing that. And so we are very happy to welcome our guest, Chris Stern, CEO and co-founder of Carbicrete, which provides concrete solutions for carbon dioxide. Welcome, Chris. Oh, thank you very much, Jackie and Peter. I'm very uh, happy to be here. Well, Chris, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and a bit about Carbicrete. We'll get into more details later on in the podcast, but just a a quick thumbnail for everyone. Yeah, great. Well, I'm a uh, degreed engineer, but... uh, didn't practice uh, up until now. I've been mostly in business development and sales. And uh, first half of my career, I was selling capital equipment. And then I got into the solar power industry in 2005. I uh, ended up starting a company in residential solar, which we sold to NRG Energy in 2014. This is my second startup. And Carbocrete is a technology that was invented at McGill, my alma mater. We started the company in 2016. And um, here we are today with 40 people. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really impressive. So yeah, I mean, for our audience, you're speaking to us from Montreal, where you're from. Exactly, yes. Right, okay. Well, give us a sense of like how much concrete is consumed annually in the world. And maybe also add to that the basic dynamics or the process of making concrete. Like what is concrete? So how much is consumed and what it is? Yeah, so there's about 30 gigatons, so that's 30 billion tons of concrete made every year. China, for example, makes enough concrete to build 2,000 pentagons, the uh, the U.S. Uh, building. Mm. If you've ever seen it, it's immense, and they make enough to make 2,000 of them. There's uh, two tons of concrete made for every person. 
that walks uh, the planet wow. every day. Wow. Uh, every year, sorry. And so the process of making concrete is you take uh, cement, water, and aggregate and mix it all together, and then it sets. Where the greenhouse gas emissions come from are the manufacturing of cement. Roughly half the emissions come from burning fossil fuels or old tires or other things like that to heat up the kilns to get to the right temperature. And then the other half comes uh, from, you're starting off with limestone, so calcium carbonate, CaCO3. And when you burn it, you tear off the CO2, and that becomes calcium oxide, which is what we know as cement. Making cement is a very energy-intense combustion-based process because you have to heat the CaCO3, calcium carbonate, to these high temperatures, right? Is that where the yeah. bulk of the emissions are, are lib- or is actually... No, no, it's half and half. It's, so it's, it's half because of a chemical like reaction. chemical equation, and then the other half is from burning stuff. Uh, there are processes uh, that are being explored now to do it with different energy sources, but there's like thousands of cement plants that are operating today uh, burning stuff. Like is it dominantly natural gas that they used? Or is it? Uh, uh, it's gas. It's other. It's uh, it's other. It's fossil fuels, uh, effectively. Yeah. Greening the cement industry, uh, in their perspective, is you know using old tires. That, that that actually is greening their industry, according to them. But so it's 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 burning whatever they can get their hands on. Well, and one of the challenges is the the energy part. Maybe you could substitute, but this chemical reaction, you can't get rid of that with the existing process unless you do something different. But hey, before we get onto that, I wanted to talk about, so what are the options? There's obviously an option to do it differently. Are there options that are being looked at, for example, substituting the use of concrete, like using more wood or recycling more concrete? Like, are there other options outside of a new process to reduce the emissions? Like, that's incredible, two tons of concrete per person on the planet. Like, Yeah, I mean, look, in Canada, we do a lot of buildings with wood. What used to be... Uh, you know, difficult in the past, they now make 12-story buildings out of wood. The problem with buildings made out of wood is that they can burn down very easily and quickly. So that's a bit of a, a challenge for the the industry. The other ways you can make concrete, uh, you can capture the carbon uh, from the cement plant, which is very expensive, but you can capture the CO2 coming off the smokestacks. Well, those are some of the ways to mitigate this, uh, the carbon mm-hmm. footprint of the cement industry. Are the emissions, the CO2 emissions, fairly pure to capture? Or is that, I mean, you said it's difficult to capture. Is it because it's not so pure in the flu? Yeah, precisely. In terms of flu gas, it's fairly concentrated compared to a natural gas fire electricity plant, which is like 8% of CO2. A cement plant, it's about 30%. So it's it's more pure than, the, than other things, but still it's difficult to clean. All right, we're going to get into carbocrete solution, but in general, are there different kind of categories of new processes that are being developed because if it's hard to capture CO2, you may have to just do it differently. And are there options yeah. for that? Yeah, that's precisely it. I mean, you're looking to make calcium oxide. So there's many different ways to do that. And there's a lot of new startups that are looking at making calcium oxide, either growing it, using seawater. There's other process steps to make it. But all these are sort of at TRL4. So they're just in the lab stage at this point. Whereas our process is we're just using previously enjoyed materials from the steelmaking industry and combining that with carbon dioxide to, to make carbocrete. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's uh, talk about carbocrete then. Just describe in a little bit more detail your process. Normal cement, what's the feedstock for that? And, and you're using something different. Yeah, the feedstock for cement is limestone, and that's what they're burning to make cement. Uh, from our process, we're actually taking 
an industrial byproduct of the steelmaking industry. It's called steel slag, and it's um, about 15% by weight of steelmaking is actually slag. You need to make it in order to make good steel. Uh, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to do something with it afterwards. A lot of steel slag is ending up in landfill, or uh, there's some other uses for it, like uh, you know, underneath roads. But typically, there's not a lot of use for steel slag. So we take steel slag, we combine it with some other aggregate like rock or sand, mix it with water, make a product like a concrete block or a paving stone or a retaining wall. And then we actually put it into a curing chamber where we subject it to carbon dioxide. The CO2 ends up reacting with, it, with the steel slag and it makes a calcium carbonate, effectively a limestone. Okay, so you're describing a process that not only can be a net carbon negative process is what you're saying. Absolutely. The fact remains is that we're replacing cement 100%. So there's no emissions associated with, with steel slag because it's associated with the steel making operation. Mm-hmm. To make it carbon negative, we're actually taking carbon dioxide and putting it into the mm-hmm. uh, steel slag. So the steel slag that is a byproduct of the steel industry, where would it go normally? Into landfill or it's used as road base. So try and think of it as a hard mineral so like rock, effectively. Okay. So you have to take it and transport it by truck to the concrete plant. And so how easy is it to retrofit existing concrete plants with your process? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, most of the plant remains the same. The only thing that changes is the curing system. So if you have a $30 million concrete plant, you might use one-sixth or one-seventh of that to change over the curing system in order to use our process. It's using the same mixers, the same block formation components, the same automation. Everything mm-hmm. else is the same, except for the curing system. So, okay, so how many other people are doing this? In, I guess, who are your competitors? Uh, there's a couple of competitors that do other types of cementitious materials. Nobody else is doing the technology as we have it. We have wide patent coverage for the technology. There's a handful of other uh, companies that are, are using different types of materials to get to the same end result. Now, is it unique, the, this idea that you're carbon negative? So that I guess that means that there must be some energy and using the mixers and everything, but you're absorbing more CO2 than you're using in the energy for creating the concrete. Yes, we've, we've done several life cycle analysis of the whole process from cradle to gate of the process, and we're net negative. And is that unique? Are there other types of concrete processes that achieve that? Because I sometimes see carbon neutral advertised. Yeah, there's, there's low-carbon technologies, and I'm not aware of any carbon-neutral ones, but there's no carbon-negative ones. Mm-hmm. There might be some, some that are being spoken about right now that are sort of like far off in the future. Uh, they're in the lab at this point. It's probably worth clarifying that your process today is being used to create blocks and pavers and, and products where you form them into something, and then you can put them in a curing chamber. How big is that market relative to the whole market for concrete? The precast market is about 30% of the concrete making market. This subset, which is dry cast, is nearly 10% of the entire concrete market. So it's, it's huge. Mm-hmm. There's no way we'll reach the end of that, you know, because it's the sheer size of it. I want to take you back to the process and something. The feedstock for your process is one of the feedstocks is CO2. And... So to what extent are you using 
combusted CO2 from some other process versus, you know, it's sometimes it's cheaper to manufacture CO2 and use CO2. Yeah. So, I mean, like, look, we're operating in Quebec right now at our pilot plant, in uh, which is about an hour away from Montreal. We get our carbon dioxide from a biogenic source. It's from an ethanol fermentation plant. So nothing's being burnt to make this mm-hmm. carbon dioxide. Okay. So then that brings about the next question, which relates to carbon credits. So given that you're carbon negative, are you generating and selling credits or how does, how does that work in the carbon market? Yeah, on a contractual basis, you know, part of our licensing agreement is that we hold on to those carbon credits. The abatement credits are, are worth something, which is, you know, the replacing of cement by a, a, um, a non-CO2 related material, so the steel slag. But the removal credits are worth quite a bit more, actually, like hundreds of dollars uh, per ton. And are you selling those, like I know you're in Quebec and uh, you guys have a cap and trade there where you have a, I think you're aligned with California. Are you selling into that market or is it more voluntary markets where you're achieving that type of price for your carbon credits? Yeah, it's the voluntary markets. The uh, Because they're, they're frontier credits, people really want these because mineralization is literally the best way to get rid of CO2. It's mm-hmm. The lifetime is like more than 100,000 years, you know, compared to a tree, which is less than 100 Right. What are uh, frontier credits? Could you just clarify that? So it's the beginning of the industry, you, you know. So so people want to they want to support this part of the industry so that it grows and that it becomes normal uh, or more normal, I should say, than other types such as planting trees or other types of carbon removal. Because the voluntary market is much lower than that typically, not not nearly a hundred dollars. But there are certain buyers out there that say, "I want to support mm-hmm. these new technologies." Yeah, so Shopify, Stripe, and, and Microsoft, and a few others got together and they created something called the Frontier Fund. It's nearly a billion dollars, and its purpose is to do just that, to support companies like ours with outsized purchases for, for the carbon credits. So the, the CO2 input you're getting basically credits for as you get into arrangements with the ethanol plant where you get the CO2 from. The steel slag, so the steel makers would have otherwise thrown this into the landfill. Do they now charge you for the steel slag or how does that work? Do you buy the steel slag or do they give it to you or say, come and take it away? It depends uh, because in some cases you've got small bits, like so less than a few millimeters in diameter. And this is, mm-hmm. this there's a tipping fee because it's useless. When it's larger chunks, like when it looks like gravel, it's about five bucks a ton um, mm-hmm. because they can they can sell it into you know a, a company making a road. It can be used as the base. Mm-hmm. Now it must be really heavy to move this around. I, I just I don't even know, but something called steel slag seems heavy. Is that a constraint to your process that the transportation costs for that heavy material, or or just concrete face that? It's like you're transporting rocks around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to make it within an within a certain amount of kilometers from where the, the source is. So part of our economics are within 200, 250 kilometers away, the concrete plant should exist from the steel cell source. So if we were in an ideal situation where we could reinvent society and the economy, we would put a steel plant right beside a concrete plant. Oh, yeah, exactly. We're even talking to some steel companies in India and, and elsewhere saying they want to get into concrete making. And they want to put a, a concrete plant right next to their plant. You know, they've got right. CO2 from the steelmaking industry, from the steel steelmaking operations. They've got the slag, and we can create 
you know, a whole new business model for them. Now, Chris, you said 30% of the market is precast and of that 10% is sort of what you're going after. Is there a way that your process could be applied to the traditional poured concretes or do you think it's not applicable? It is applicable. I mean, we're working on a flexible uh, curing system together with McGill that you can bring to a site. So it's a transportable curing system. Uh, but we're really focused on precast because it's, look, the market's so huge. By the time we get to ready mix, it'll be years away. Now, one <laughs> barrier for new types of concrete, I understand, is the adoption or, or people accepting the product. You know, the existing thing has worked and people build things like bridges and buildings and they want them to last for 100 years. Or Peter, you just talked about in Europe, thousands of years in some cases. And they're not sure that these new types of mixes are going to be as durable or as good. Can you talk a little bit about what it takes to get people, consumers, but regulators too, to certify your products? Yeah, I mean, we're working with uh, the NRC in Canada. A lot of the products don't need any uh, certification. So like paving stones and retaining wall. It's only like in structural applications for concrete blocks, for institutional uh, installations where you should have some sort of a, people should follow the process steps that we defined with the NRC. But outside of that, I mean, you know, as long as we meet the actual uh, performance-based standards, then you can use them. And, and to be quite frank, the end material is the same as concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, once you add the CO2 with the calcium oxide, you're creating limestone. Maybe talk about your business model. Are you actually, is Carbocrete setting up concrete plants or are you licensing your technology to concrete companies or some some hybrid version of that? Or what's your business model? Yeah, we're licensing the technology. In the case of mom and pops, we can help them finance the changeover for their curing systems. But in larger companies like Fortune 50 building products companies, they can leverage mm-hmm. their balance sheet uh, right. to actually do the changeovers. Right. But it's, it's, licensing, it's a licensing-based model. Okay, so what are the next steps then for Carbocrete, given where you're at? Uh, we're getting through phase two of our pilot right now. It's actually going to be turned on next week. That's very exciting for us. So we're going to be uh, producing about 2,400 blocks a day by the end of this year. And then we're going to build out that plant uh, over the course of the next couple of months. And then, you know, we're going to be talking to many different customers. Uh, so we've got projects in Quebec and Ontario, uh, as well as in France, as well as the UK. So Chris, for everything you've told me, your solution is a part of the solution. So your technology could address the precast market, which potentially could be 30% of the whole market. But what about the rest of the market? Is there solutions for that? Yeah, there's new, uh, new ways to make cement. So there's a bunch of startups that are looking to make cement using different process steps that don't involve burning limestone. That's one way to solve it, and that's years away. The other process uh, that could be applied to the cement industry, if you don't change how you make cement, is to capture the carbon dioxide as it comes off the, uh, the, the flue stack. So like a CCS-type solution, carbon capture sequestration, which is probably essential if the concrete cement or cement-slash-concrete industry is going to achieve these aggressive targets by 2030 and beyond all the way to net zero by 2050. Precisely. Precisely. It needs to be met. Right. It's all, it's all hands mm-hmm. on deck. So, Chris, you mentioned that uh, you're working with McGill University and that you had gone there in the past. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of how the technology was developed and how McGill was involved with that? Yeah, that's a great question. So my business partner, Mirdad Mahoutian, 
was starting his PhD in 2012, and he wanted to find a material that would replace Portland cement and concrete. And so he tried many different products uh, and, and things, and he discovered that steel slag could be used as a binding agent within concrete. He also determined that you could react it with carbon dioxide to make it gain strength. So that started in 2012. I met him in 2015, and we spent a year discussing how to bring it out of McGill and uh, start a company. And by 2016, we actually started the company. It was really a process to follow. Well, and it's interesting just how long it takes to develop new technologies. You know, the, the idea was sort of in, I guess, at lab or just as an idea in someone's head in 2012. And here we are 10 years later, and you're still at a fairly early stage in terms of rolling mm-hmm. this out. So I think it's, it's a lesson in terms of, you know, it does take a long time to develop these technologies, to scale them up, to get the funding, and to get to where you are today, which how much concrete are you producing today? It's still fairly small, right, relative to where you might be in. It's small because, yeah, we're just in the pilot, the second phase of our pilot. But it, you, you know, we're, going to, we're going to be doing it at a scale by the end of this year. Right. So from there, it's going to fan out and we'll be able to expand in, in a parallel fashion. The next step is to get consumer buy-in, the construction companies, builders, etc., saying, yeah, okay, I will use this new product over what I have used for decades, century, if not millennia, if you go back to Roman times. So what, what, how are the consumers reacting to this? Are they anxious to see this kind of thing or are they... We get phone calls all the time from internet streaming companies that you all watch to uh, the phones that you use asking us, um, you know, how can we get our hands on this Uh, to big GCs, you know, general Mm -hmm. contractors, widespread inquiries into our technology. Okay. And the big, the big question, the big, maybe the biggest question, is it cost competitive with existing concrete technology? Yeah, the materials are actually less in cost because, you know, you're not burning stuff. You're taking like an unusable mm-hmm. product, just grinding it. So in terms of cost competitive, yeah, it's, it's absolutely cost competitive. In some cases, it's lower cost if you have a greenfield plant. So if you build a cement-based concrete plant next to a carbon mm-hmm. plant, ours will actually be less expensive mm-hmm. to build okay. uh, and operate. Furthermore, our technology provides that the concrete is ready within 24 hours. You can ship it and use it within 24 hours. As compared to a cement-based concrete, which takes 28 days to get to full strength, which is why when you drive by these concrete yards, they're huge. We don't need those huge yards because we can ship right from the machine. Right. Okay. And then finally, understanding this whole thing, if everybody starts using the carbocrete process, is there enough steel slag to satisfy the demand that's needed? Or is the price of steel slag going to go through the roof? That might happen, and Keynesian economics might uh, take place. I hope, it, I hope it does, but there's 250 million tons of steel slag created every year. So that's good enough for up to two gigatons of carbon-negative concrete. And then one other clarifying question. You talked about the fact that the construction companies and the different technology companies are phoning you up and wanting this product. Why is that? Is that because of the environmental attributes? Absolutely. That, that's the 100% the reason. Like they, They're trying to green the building industry, and you can't do it by just taking a little bit of carbon out of concrete because that's window dressing. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you get to net negative emissions, that gets them very excited. All right, so when I talked earlier about the fact that people are a little concerned by using these products because, you know, are they going to have the longevity of some of the existing products? 
I guess for the market that you're attracting, that isn't such a concern, and they're happy to use them right away. There isn't really a, a lot of pushback from consumers. Yeah, they're they're pushing for us. Yeah, you know, literally, all these large companies are contacting us and saying, "How can we get your product?" Well, it's a great place to be. I think that was very insightful. It's uh, interesting to talk about other heavy emitting industries beyond oil and gas and how they are modifying their processes to achieve emission reduction, meaningful emission reduction going forward. And obviously, your process obviously has consequences to the future consumption of traditional fuels. So it's very important to understand these trends from just an energy supply demand balance perspective as well. It's absolutely very interesting. And, and just a further note, I mean, Jackie mentioned the airline industry responsible for 4% of greenhouse gas emissions. Guess what? Light vehicle is 6%. You know, and look, at, you've got a, a trillion dollar company making cars, you know, mm-hmm. to tackle a 6% problem. Well, Chris Stern, CEO and co-founder of Carbocrete, thanks very much for joining us. Jackie, we'll put the website link on our site and anyone who has more interest in the company can go check it out yeah thank you chris thanks very much and thanks to our listeners if you enjoyed this podcast please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us for more ideas and insights visit arcenergyinstitute.com <laughs>